It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. The faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. All right. So um, I just, I only need, uh, there's only three votes you can have. It's thumbs up, it's uh, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle, okay? And uh, thumbs up if you, uh, I'm going to describe a situation, and if you, agree, if you feel like, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm with that, uh, then you give the thumbs up. If, if, if you disagree with that, uh, thumbs down, and you're like, I don't know if I have enough information to make a decision, you can give me that, so-so, uh, okay? So you, you feel like uh, when you observe society at large and culture and like your general life uh, in total, you feel like things are getting better and better. Like you're just encouraged of the way that things are going and you're not, you're not fearful or anxious about anything that you see happening in the world and culture. You feel like this is really working the way that it ought to, and uh, it's probably going to wind up in utopia. And uh, if that's your sense of where things are going, you can give me a thumbs up, okay? If, if you feel like, Mitch, that doesn't quite describe the world that I see right now. Um, I, don't, I, don't quite dis- I don't quite agree with that. Uh, I, it's not going bad, but it, it's, it's not going good, but it's not going bad. You can do the thumbs in the middle. And if you're thumbs down people, uh, you know that it's the antithesis of everything I just described. So give me your vote right now. Yeah. Is that a down or middle? It, and it would be interesting to, to I'm, I'm calling my daughter out here right now, but um, it, it would be interesting to know if you're somewhere in the middle, it would probably be, it seems like weighted towards um, younger generations. We're going to get into some of this generational problem or the, the generational um, kind of dichotomy, dichotomy this morning. But um, the world in general, I think, if, if I was just going to make the presumption based on your votes and where I assumed you would be on this, is most people are wanting to know what in the world is going on, right? This is something you've uttered to yourself or thought, how, how can people be this crazy? And it, it's not so much that, um, that we feel like uh, that that's a bad thing. It's that we want, something to, so we want somebody to do something. Is that not the general feeling you get? Like, it's not going well. Someone should do something. Like, we put out the, the panic button out there because we want people to, to, to fix the problem, and yet we don't know who's responsible for fixing the problem or even how to go about fixing the problem. So this brings up this morning, I, th- I was thinking this week about how, how we feel anxious about it, but that we, we don't not sure what to do with it, and so we kind of internalize that, and the panic button is always going off, or it's kind of like silently bleeping in the background, SOS, right? SOS. Do you guys know what S- SOS means? It doesn't mean what you think it means. It's, it's just a, 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 most people go with save our souls, but it's just a distress call. And uh, I, I got to thinking this week about the, the tragedy of the Titanic. And, and it's interesting that just recently they went, uh, they, they had the Titan submersible, remember? And they went to all the expense to get a PlayStation controller to, uh, 
to control this, this uh, submarine that was going to go and explore the Titanic wreck. And you remember, I think, how many people were on board? Four or five, something like that. And uh, they lost contact with the submersible as it was going down at some point, And there was a whole big deal about, well, do, are they still alive down there? Like, are they trying to get to us? And we just lost connection with them. And so for a few days there, there was a search going on. And then it found out that they imploded uh, shortly after going down to a certain depth. But it's interesting that the, the layers of irony that go with that Titan submersible with the actual tragedy of the Titanic itself. And um, if, you're, if you're not familiar, which I assume most of you are generally familiar with the story of the Titanic is what happened. We had a giant ship uh, that was, was to set sail and it was dubbed, uh, besides the fact of its own name, it was called the what? The unsinkable ship, right? And so just the, the general feeling towards the Titanic as you were probably boarding it, if you were a passenger on that uh, a maiden uh, journey, was probably like, I'm in good hands. Like, could I be in better hands? And yet we know that uh, somewhere along the way, they hit what? An iceberg. And so I was doing more research about that this week. And uh, when you start to, sort of, they, they've gone back and they've done research with like the, the survivors and tried to like piece together the story. And so let me fill in a couple of details for you that I, I think might um, be of interest for you and it will help for where we're going this morning. So it's not that there was a really small iceberg that, um, that, that was something that they overlooked. It was that it was a really big iceberg with only a small part of it that was sticking above the surface, right? And then on top of that, um, what you find out is that the captain uh, was unfamiliar because he hadn't uh, run the ship before. And when um, they actually spotted the iceberg before, they, they hit it. And they began to do some maneuvers to try and steer around it. And instead of um, doing what he should have done, which was actually to steam into it and, and make the turn, he uh, did a full reverse rudder, and it actually caused them to turn more slowly. And so they weren't able to actually avoid the iceberg. So they hit it, and uh, it damaged several of the compartments that are up front. And uh, as they began to overcome um, the bulkheads, more and more of the ship began to take on water. And so um, on top of that, uh, they, they went back and they said, you know what, it looks like that some of the steel wasn't actually up to the quality that it was meant to be up to. And that some of the rivet jobs that were in the front of the hull uh, weren't very weren't very well done. And so there was like a, a craftsmanship issue overall, but it would have never been exposed had the iceberg not been overlooked and had the captain not made the wrong maneuver. In fact, they were scheduled to have a, uh, uh, a drill that day, which they did not do, which was to execute a sort of emergency drill where everybody gets on, onto the, the deck and practices getting to where they're supposed to be to get on a lifeboat. And if you know anything about this story, you know that there were not enough lifeboats on uh, board to contain the number of passengers. Now, it, it's common, uh, commonly thought that that was because they didn't want the appearance of um, it being an unsafe ship, which is partially true. It was just that they did what was required by, uh, by the regulations at that time for the number of passengers for the size of vessel it was. And had they carried enough lifeboats, the thing would have been totally surrounded on the upper deck with lifeboats. So that would have, been, that would have appeared, right, as a very unsafe ship. So it was partially about this, like, image uh, of not being unsafe, but also they had done, like, enough, just enough. Think about it like that. There's also on board some um, that were called wireless operators, but they were basically telegraphers, and, uh, right? And so they would take the, uh, the Morse code that was going. And uh, their job was to relay important messages, not just to the vessels around, uh, but also they were communicating between passengers. Passengers would send messages either to home, and that would be relayed onto shore, so on and so forth. And so um, what they should have been doing at the time was um, giving distress signals 
and, and taking in reports of icebergs, they were actually um, doing the, the passengers' messages. So they were just kind of like, you know, doing, being about whatever uh, the normal things that were, instead of being about the very important business of um, relaying the, the message and the uh, reports of icebergs ahead. And so all of these things kind of culminate together. You can see of this tragic accident where if I was going to describe it, what sunk the Titanic? Was it, was it the iceberg? I mean, was it, was it the captain? Was it the lack of the drill that they should have executed and did? Was it the steel that wasn't up to par? Was it the, the number of lifeboats? And then what happened was after um, people uh, initially found out that the, the vessel's um, fate had been sealed, um, you know, some people, they boarded the lifeboats and launched them uh, before they were at capacity. And then they rode far away because if you know anything about a, a large uh, mass going under the water, it, it creates a suction after it. And so they, they rode far away. And for fear of being sucked back in, they didn't go rescue more passengers who were out in the water. And so many of them also perished for exposure. So you also, you can look around at even the passengers who, who got away, and then they didn't take any responsibility. So I think if I was going to sum up um, the problem of the Titanic, it, it did not sink because of an iceberg. It sunk because of a, a general attitude of apathy. And apathy encompasses all of the attitudes uh, from, from soup to nuts of everything that happened in the building of the Titanic, into the steering of the Titanic, into um, the, the accident occurring, the, the people not responding. All of that is somebody saying, that's not my problem. But everybody's saying, this is a problem. Somebody do something. Right? Once everybody gets at the problem, everybody wants somebody to do something. And they send out the SOS call, and yet it seems to be beyond reach at that moment. Make no mistake, the problem was not a rogue iceberg. They, were, they knew they were going into um, waters that were going to have these icebergs. It was the feeling of apathy, the, the general consensus that I, I, we are bigger than the problem that's ahead. And once that problem became a problem for them, it, it was too much to handle because they were unprepared for it. And so the general elements of neglect, things like pride, lack of responsibility, ill-timing, people being uninformed, the passengers not knowing, compounded by the fact that there was a proud captain, an indifferent crew, an unprepared vessel, a poorly manufactured product, and an unaware people. And all of that sort of sums up, I think, our situation. And I want you to point I want to point you this morning, as we're looking at Jude, not towards a, a somebody do something, but a very specific somebody you need to do something very specific in response to this feeling that you might have about what in the world is going on in the world today. And so the goal of Jude and my goal this morning is very narrow. Um, I'm, my notes this morning is not to remind me of things to say, it's to keep me on track from saying too much, okay? There's a lot in this book, and... Um, and it's a very short letter. It's only um, one chapter. And so what I want to communicate this morning is essentially what Jude has communicated in these first four verses, which is that you need to wake up. And then I, I want to talk about what does that actually mean? Is he, is he just talking about moving from unconsciousness to consciousness to being aware? No, he says you need to contend for the faith. There's some kind of call to action. And so I want to narrow the goal down this morning for you to see. The thesis is this. Be alerted that there is a battle. And you need to be aware of what the sides are of the battle and what the stakes are of that battle. And then be, because of those elements, you can be aware of and, and your obligation towards what you need to do about this. So uh, I want to, um, before we get to this this morning, show you Jesus' words to the church in Revelation where Jesus says this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. 
He, he's, he's telling his church that, um, that everybody thinks that what you're doing is, is full of life. You have that reputation, but you really are dead. And then he says that that deadness is characterized because you're asleep. Wake up is the remedy for this. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. That's interesting. And, uh, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You're, you're, there's something you're obligated to do. There's action involved there. Your works are not complete. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. If you're unconscious, if you're unaware, if you're apathetic towards the situation, then you're going to be surprised by not being your duty when Christ comes to take account. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So let me pray for our time in the Word. We'll break down these four verses and see what the Lord would have for us this morning. Father, I pray for... Um, this message, that um, you would use it um, to um, set off the alarm clock for us as um, your people, the church, that you are calling us to wake up, and you are calling us to arms, and you're calling us to um, contend for the faith. And so I ask that this morning it would not be my words or my ideas, my thoughts, but it would be yours, spoken uh, from your truth. God, give us some... Um, what we don't have, which is your eyes and ears and heart, that we can receive these things, but fill us with uh, your courage and knowledge this morning so that we can be about your work. Pray that you're pleased with all that's done and said. May it all be for your glory. And everyone said, amen. Thank you. All right. Verse one, introduction to, uh, to our, our letter writer, which is Jude introduce himself. Jude, who is a servant of Jesus, that word for servant is, is slave. It's kind of um, it made a little more PC for our, our liking, but it wasn't a slave who was inherited. It, the word is doulos, which is like a, an indentured servitude or, or somebody that has chosen to be in the situation. It was like non-negotiable. And so Jude identifies himself primarily as someone who is a slave to Christ, but he also says he's the brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Um, he, he makes this connection to James, and um, this is James the Apostle who was the Apostle of the Jerusalem Church who also penned the book of James. And so we find out that Jude is also the half-brother of Jesus. But he doesn't use this family connection as his main point of introduction. He doesn't say, hey, Jude, half-brother of Jesus, listen to what I have to say. He says, I'm Jude, I'm a slave to Christ. And just so you know who I am, I am the half-brother of Jesus. And so our primary identity needs to, to be under the idea that Jesus is our master and our Lord. He's going to write to a people who should identify in the same way. And um, what, what Jude likes to do in his, in his style, you'll see it a lot, is he, he says things in threes. He likes threes. And so he gives like three qualities of the people that he's writing to. And the three um, qualities he, he gives are they're called, you are called, you're beloved, and you're kept. Called, beloved, and kept. I want to um, introduce you to these three words. Um, you don't have to remember the Greek because you won't. But you, you need to know what's behind them. Called has to do with the fact that there's a, a relationship here. It's, it's, it's implied in the message. There's, a, there's an implied relationship, and it's to be called to a specific task. So he's saying essentially this. To those who are called in relationship to Christ as master and Lord, and who are being given a task for what your role is, that's that kletos. And then beloved, which is um, the, the, the agapeo kind of love. And that's the, the highest form of love, which is what, what, what Christ gives to us and what God has for us. For God so loved the world. That's that same word. In this way, he's given a kind of um, covenant love for us. So he's saying the people who are, are called, who have a relationship, who have a task, who are 
um, beloved by God and who are kept. And this is uh, an interesting word. It means to be guarded. It has like a military term, and it means um, to, 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 be, uh, to, to, have, to be surrounded, to be preserved. You may have a, a different translation depending on what you're reading this morning. And it's interesting because all three of these are in a, a passive tense, which means um, they're not something that you do. It's something that's done to you. It's something that, that God is doing for you and to you. So you are called because God called you. you this isn't not, it's not love that you found me out. Jesus says, I have called you from out of the world. And he, he makes the first move, and he's called you to himself, and he's given you a task, which is to live for him, for his glory. And he loves you, and he wants you to carry that out, and he's keeping you no matter what. And this is what the prayer is in John 10, where when, when Jesus is saying, Father, keep, keep uh, them unified with me just as you and I are one, and keep them in the world. That's that, that guarded word. And so all of this is um, alerting you to the fact that, that um, James is seeking to encourage us because he's, he's going to make some, some blunt statements throughout this. And he, he's going to give us on the front end sort of that, that, that framework that we can start from, the, the thing that we can plant our feet on. And so this morning, as maybe you hear um, the, the, the trumpet being called and, and being summoned for battle, the worst that could happen is that you wake up and you're summoned for battle. And you're like, Mitch, why do you want to get me all riled up? Because you need to be prepared. And the worst thing that could happen is that you're prepared. There's no such thing as um, somebody being overprepared for battle, right? It's the, the problem is when you're underprepared or not, you, you haven't been um, training, you haven't been exercising, you haven't been um, really uh, aware of the fact that the battle's going to come. And so I don't want to minimize that. And so this morning, first plant your feet on this truth. There's a, a directed people that God is talking to here. He's not talking to everybody in the whole world. He's talking to those who are called, beloved, and kept. And he's giving them a promise. May mercy, um, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love. There's a lot of false assurances today that are going around under these, these three ideas, these three words. And what, uh, what Jude is doing in this moment is he's connecting true mercy and true peace and true love to God the Father and for those that are called, kept, and beloved. And what happens in the world is that there's a lot of people that are saying, peace, peace, although there's no peace right? If you, if you look at the world and you're like, that's chaos and insanity, and, you're, and you see that, and then on the news, they're like, mostly peaceful, mostly peaceful protests as stuff is on fire behind them, right? They're wishing you peace, peace, while there is no peace. This is a word that comes from Jeremiah um, chapter 6, verses 14. Listen to this. It's a, starting in verse 13, Jeremiah says, um, this is the message from God. From the least to the greatest of them, Everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. And then he's going to say why they do this. So he says, it doesn't matter if they're young or old. They only care about themselves. And even the prophet and the priest are giving messages for their own gain. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. Meaning they, they, see, um, they see injustice and they see problems and they're, they're, they're glazing over it lightly. They don't really care. They're not actually healing the wound. They're just rubbing some dirt in it and calling it good. And they're doing this with this word, peace, peace. Don't worry about it. It's okay. That's not really God's um, judgment on you. Don't worry. That's not. So do you see the problem of just saying, wishing somebody peace, peace? When you're being told peace, peace, when there is no peace, they're saying that you're being offered words of false assurance, which bid people to come and die in more comfort, which is an upgrade to first class when the, when the boat's already going down. You, you feel better about the situation for a little bit, but you're ultimately your demise is still 
guaranteed destruction is nonetheless the same. And so true mercy and true peace and true love are not found in those things. They're found in the original address, which is to be called, beloved, and kept by God. Churches are being overwhelmed because they want people to have this kind of peace and they wish it falsely. They wish it outside of the truths of God. They're, they're not actually fulfilling what God says to say about, which is to give the full and unfiltered truth to the world, but because they know that that's not popular, they're not giving it. And so they're withholding from people the truth and they're just saying, peace, peace. And that's a, a, a bad kind of message. It's not just a dangerous message, it's a deadly one. And he's wishing it to you. So this morning, the bad news is attached to the good news. The worst news that you could have this morning is that that doesn't apply to you. And the easy fix for that, I should say, I should say the simple, but not necessarily easy fix for that, is to be one who is called, beloved, and kept. And so my hope this morning is that even in hearing this, this morning, that you would see the gospel distinction, the strong distinction between, it's not everybody in the world that gets mercy, love, and peace from God. It's those who he's called and those who he set his love on and those who are kept. So now Jude is going to move in verse 3 to the real, um, he's given them up front this foundation to set their feet on. And he says, I was, very, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then you can see in that contend is, is the meat of what we're trying to get to this morning. Judah's saying, I wanted to write you about just kind of the general instruction in salvation, but he says, I found something more compelling. There's, it's, it's not, um, he's not writing about something within the, the, the realm of salvation. He's saying, you are saved, but I was going to write to you about that, but now I have to address this problem. I have to address the general sense of apathy that you have about what's happening in your midst. And so he, he says it's a necessity it's as if not negotiable on which that I can give you these warnings. I'm writing to you to appeal that you would contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. When Jesus says to the, to, in Revelation, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. That's why it's necessary. Because there's a consequence for not being awake. There's a consequence for not contending. There's a consequence for not being somebody who's paying attention to the fact that Jesus does require something more than an intellectual acknowledgement. He's calling them to contend. Contend earnestly. I, I put that in parentheses. And I want you to see that the middle of the root of this word that he's saying is contend. It's, it's a military term, but it's often used in other contexts to talk about like athletics and sports. And in the middle of that, you see the, the cognate there, which is what? Agony. Agonize. Has to do with effort. Has to do with straining. Working hard towards a goal. And it, it, it's sort of um, made emphatic with this prefix, ep. So it, it's the idea of this contending earnestly, struggling really hard, not just like a little bit. That you actually must have an intensified version of earnestness towards this struggle. So it means to, to fight or contend or strive. It's, it's used in other places, like in 1 Timothy, where he tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. That word of fight, right? Fight the good fight of faith. That's the word for contention here. Also in 2 Timothy 4.7, which um, we read at the beginning of music this morning, where um, Paul again says to Timothy, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, which is interesting because that's the same thing that Jesus tells the church in Revelation to wake up and hold fast to what you know. Keep the faith. So, and that's exactly what Jude is admonishing the people to do as well. Hold fast 
to the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. In 1 Timothy, um, oh, excuse me, let me uh, read, uh, I don't have this for you, but just listen carefully. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, there's uh, another usage of this word, and I want you to hear it again. When, when Paul's talking about, he, he likes this athletic metaphor, but he also likes that, that idea of battle, because he, he sees the fact that there, there's an intensity to it, and it's competition, and so he's, he's comparing our salvation to a competition. And um, being in that, that culture of, of Rome and Greece, the, the Olympics are a, a very near um, thing that people could relate to. And so he, he talks about uh, being a race and in, in training. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you can scribble this down if you want to read it later. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? Well, of course, right? When, when the gun goes, you run. But only one receives the prize. So you run, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. There's um, uh, that word exercises, is that striving word. Exercise self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So now he's talking about people run for this, this, this to be crowned with the gold medal or to be crowned with the, 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 the victory wreath, which they wore on their heads. And they, they, they run in a way um, to obtain the prize, and we have such a better prize than that. And then in verse 26, he says, so I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating there. So he switches metaphors here from a race to the idea of a boxer, which I, I think is um, an apt one for us. Because he talks about, he says, I'm not, like, I'm not a boxer that's training who's shadow boxing, who's just like pretending to beat the air. I'm, I'm boxing in a way as that I'm actually sparring with a partner. Or I'm actually running in a way so that I might receive the prize. It, there's, there's two ways to run a race, right? There's just running in the race because you're in the race and you must. And maybe bailing out or whatever. You pulled a hammy in uh, the first four feet or something like that. Or you run regardless of if you pull a hamstring or whether or not you've trained for it. You run in a way to try and get the prize. And, and Paul doesn't say you only get the prize if you win. He says run in a way like you are trying to win. So he says, regardless of how good you can do, do how good you can do. Can I say that again? He doesn't say only the person that wins, wins. He says, I run like somebody who wants to win. You should run like somebody, agonize like somebody who wants to win. I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's, he's pointing to the fact that our engagement is necessary. And we've made a, a false distinction between the intellectual engagement in truth and the actual application and running the race, engaging and running the race you know, as, as, as a person that wants to win. Um, in 2002, the Olympics came to Salt Lake City. You guys remember that? The Winter Olympics? And... Uh, some of you are like, no, I wasn't alive yet, so just hush over there, okay? That's fine. So um, wherever the Olympics are, they, they host it, and they must build a place for all the athletes to come. And it's called the Olympic Village, and it's just um, chock full of all the athletes. It's just a place, a residence, where they can all stay for the duration of the Olympics so that, you know, they're not all in hotels. Okay, so they built the Olympic Village, and if you, in 2002, were to visit the Olympic Village... Without exception, everyone there was a world-class athlete, right? You knock on the door, what do you do? I'm a world-class skier or whatever, right? Like, everybody there is an athlete, and they're going to give their best. They've trained previous to that. They've come there for that purpose, and no matter where you look, if you're in that village, okay, everybody there is there to contend. Am I right? Now, if you go to that same village today, it's just like families live there. Knock, knock, what do you do? I don't know. 
I'm a plumber, right? Like, is that person at the same caliber, are they prepared to run a race, an Olympic race? Are they prepared to ski at Olympic levels? No, no, okay. There's, there's no mystery there. So, okay, so here's where I want to tie together the idea of apathy, general unawareness, and the fact that you're being called to wake up with the fact of what happened to the Titanic. If tomorrow you got the summons, but you were supposed to compete in the Olympics, what kind of situation would you be in? A tough one, right? You've prepared nothing for this, right? This is the problem, is that it's not, it's not an unknown call. It's not something that should be a surprise. All along, you've been told to compete in a way that you're actually going to have to compete. And we've thought about it as a way of, I'm competing in my mind. I know all the truths of God, okay? And we've made this separation between what we know and what we do. It's a false distinction. It's a false distinction, and it's one um, that you, you have to erase. You must do both. You must train and also compete. You train in private. That's what we're doing right now. When we gather here as the church, this is, this is what we're doing. But you compete out in public. And the purpose of the training is not to train so you can be the best-trained intellectual Bible student there is. There's value in that, but there's only value in it so far as it applies to your competition. Do you, do you see the application here? There's only value in what you're doing here if it's moving to application in your competition out amongst the world. So, what is it that you're being called to do? You're called to run the race with all the training and knowledge that you're getting here in a way as that you're, that you're competing in the world. And the way that you do this is not by going and beating up all of the people in the world. It's, it's, being, it's holding fast to the faith. That's what, that's what Paul is applying as his race. He says, hold fast to the faith, lest all of the stuff that I've been telling other people to do, to prepare and to work hard, that I myself would be disqualified. So don't train like it doesn't matter. Train with a purpose because there is a purpose. Holding fast to the word of God. And we'll, we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks, about how, how this works and what it actually looks like. So you train in private, what we're doing here, but you actually contend in public. And so you can go someplace that has the reputation you could go to Olympic Village in Salt Lake City right now, but it wouldn't be full of athletes. That's the kind of problem that Jude's addressing. Way, way back when he wrote this, somewhere like around 80, 60, 65, somewhere in there, okay? If there was a problem then, it's really a problem now. And he's writing not to the world. The problem is not the icebergs out there in the world. The problem is the Titanic here that is indifferent to the fact that we're running into icebergs, we're taking on water, and we don't care. And he's trying to put some urgency in our hearts so that when you show up, you don't go, where are all the athletes at? You say, well, what are you talking about, man? I'm intellectually trained. Okay? So here's why he's, he's so, why he's pleading with the people. Okay? This is the root of it. And then he's going to spend a good portion of the rest of the letter explaining um, who these people are. Because he says, for certain people, have crept in unnoticed. That's, that's, a, that's an important idea. Because he's talking about the fact that there's, we, we're taking on water, those people in, in this metaphor, or the water that's being brought on, the ocean's coming inside, the, peop, the stuff that was supposed to be outside is now inside for whatever reason. I mean, just pick your poison on why there might be a threat to the church or why we're bringing on things that we ought not to bring on. But they've come in because we've been lacking awareness about it. And so then he goes on to describe the people who have crept in on those, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. 
And then he's going to give three qualities because that's what he does. They're ungodly. They pervert the grace of our God into lewdness or to um, sensuality. That's a, uh, an important word because this is all tied to some, some very specific um, truths of God. And so we'll, we'll unpack those in the coming weeks. But lewdness is, I think, a more uh, appropriate word because sensuality doesn't quite convey what he means by that. He says they're turning the grace of God into sensuality and they're deniers. They're deniers of the only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. They're ungodly, they're lewd, and they're deniers. So what is the identity that he's after here? Well, he says, first of all, their condemnation, excuse me, is predicted. Uh, he says it's, uh, that, that word there is actually, it's forewritten. Meaning, um, way back when um, all the prophecies of the Old Testament, where God was telling the people, there were going to come false teachers, and they're going to prophesy things to you that I did not say. And don't listen to them. So if what they say is going to happen, doesn't happen, they're false teachers. If they try to lead you to, um, some other, to worship some other God, they're false teachers. And he, he's, he's pointing out the fact that long ago these things were recorded and they're condemned. And they're supposed to be um, uh, not, not just cut off from the covenant, but killed was supposed to be the idea. And this is what Jude's referring to. He says, long ago we were told that these kinds of people would come in to our midst. And they're going to say things that aren't true. And what you do with that is important because their destruction is assured. And if you latch on to that to that person, you latch on to that leadership, you latch on to that message, you're going to follow in their wake, right? They're going to lead you to destruction. So he's got a lot of ways to, 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 to uh, categorize what it is that they're doing. He, he describes them as um, wandering stars and, and um, hidden reefs and all kinds of things that we'll talk about. But it's been written beforehand. It was prophesied also by Jesus that after I leave, false um, uh, wolves will come in and they're going to scatter the sheep. They will not spare anyone. It was prophesied by Peter and Paul. All the apostles point to this, that false teachers will come in and they'll ravage the people, which is the church. In this important moment, it's not so much about the problem of all the bad stuff out there. It's all the bad stuff that we're letting leak in here. And this is what we're, our, our, our attention is supposed to be directed on. So it's not inconsequential. And we like to, we like to um, gloss over things because it's easier to make them inconsequential. Like, there's a, there's, a, there's a syncretism, which means to just, like, allow, allow some kind of things to, to, to be married together that ought not to be married together. And we go, well, that's not an essential part of doctrine, is it? Like, it's okay if you don't actually think the same thing, but small things always become big things. And we'll talk more about that next week. Because he says, essentially, the, the, the outcome of this is that they, they pervert the grace of God into to lewdness, effectively pointing to the, the fact of um, sensuality or, or sexuality. And it always seems to start there or at least um, be introduced there under whatever reason. Well, that's part of grace or that's just love. And so if you think about how those things get introduced into the church and we take things on that we ought not to take on. And so I, I would be um, here for a while if I begin to list all of the denominations that are becoming apostate because they've decided to um, just say, well, you know what, um, you know, gender and um, sexuality are, are, it's okay. We can, we can just accept whatever. And that's to be indifferent towards the iceberg, to run into it and say, it won't matter. We can take that on. It will be okay. And so he says what they're doing is they're perverting the grace of God, which actually calls us out of those things to a different identity, that we're beloved and that we're kept by God for God to serve him. And so they're perverting this into something that is gross. And they are destined for destruction. 
So this especially seems to manifest in the areas that I think you're familiar with and the things that we most look at and say, what in the world is going on in the world? Well, it's, 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 it's not an unexpected outcome, but it should be an unexpected result in the church. And so stop looking out there and start looking in here. That's, that's where your um, attention ought to be focused. And eventually they deny the fact that Jesus has actually delivered once and for all a truth. And, and, and that's... Um, Sort of um, the final word here, I think I um, skipped over. So he says, um, they were long ago designated for this. I'm missing there. Contend for the truth that was once and for all delivered to the saints. I apologize. Back in verse 3 is where he says this. And I want to um, point out two things. He says, it's the faith. There's a, def- there's a definite article there that was once and for all delivered to the saints. It is a, it's a closed body. There's nothing new to be added to it. There won't be new further revelation. There won't be any adjustments going on. But that's exactly what you see happening in the church today. There's a new teaching. They misread this for years. And here's actually what this means. And, he, and, and over and over, the, the, the thing that we are called to do is not just to run and strive aimlessly, but to hold fast to the faith, to keep the faith, the faith, the one that was delivered, the one that was delivered by the apostles. He, he goes on in verse 5 to, to unpack that. The one, you are aware of this already. It was, it was a, a set body of knowledge. And he's calling us to, 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 to pay heed to this. So the key here, I, I think, is to um, apply this in uh, our hearts a few different ways. First is this, uh, essentially this, wake up, there's a battle, right? If you're unaware of this at the moment, like, I, I don't know how you couldn't be, I think you're aware of it, but you look at it as a problem that's outside. And the problem with outside is that it's leaking in here. And you say, well, is that my problem? Well, now we go to that attitude of apathy, and that's the problem. Is everybody says it's not my problem, but somebody do something. And Jude's pointing the finger at you, and he says, you do something. And don't just do anything, do something specific. We'll just hold fast to the faith. He's, he's pointing to the fact that we should be driven and holding fast to the word of God no matter where we find ourselves. So wake up to the fact that there is a battle and there's sides to the battle and there's stakes there. Now, there's one side that have mercy, peace, and love that are guaranteed. They're kept forever in the love of God. And the other side, which is condemned. It's a guaranteed outcome. And so the question is, are you aware of the stakes that are there? identify the infiltrations, and instead of looking out there, look in here. Look at yourself. Erase the distinction between of what you intellectually know and what you're actually doing. I think all of you, if we went down some sort of weird checklist of what you ought to do and what you ought not to do, could get most of the answers right. Like you'd get probably somewhere above 95% on should I do this and not that. But do you live that way? It's not the intellectual knowledge that's, that's the gap. It's the apathy towards application of intellectual knowledge. So get some urgency because the stakes are so high. We're already taking on water. The, the, the destruction's assured. The question is, like, can it be a crisis that's averted? Now, there is a kind of, there's a, there's a, there, there's a, there's a guarantee for those that are, are kept in love. But for churches that um, are indifferent or apathetic, towards um, this problem, um, Jesus says, like, I, I'm coming in judgment. I, I'll, if you don't wake up, the result is not going to be, I'll say, it's okay. You, I, won't, I won't worry about it. Do you, do you see the thing? that It's not just the fact that you're sitting in Olympic Village, okay? It's are you an athlete that's striving in a way to win? 
And that might sound like I'm trying to give you a works-based salvation. I'm not. I'm trying to tell you that you ought to strive because that's what you're commanded to do because you're striving from salvation, not for it. Okay? You, you, the, the, the win is already guaranteed, and he's already equipped you with everything. He's planted you for him. He said, it doesn't matter what happens outside. I promise to keep you. So train with purpose. Hold fast to the faith. So why are they creeping in on notice, right? And you might look around like, is it you? Okay. It's, it's not, it is people, but it's teachings in general. Okay, and, and it's the ideas that creep into our own worldview about what's okay and what's acceptable and what we can believe and not believe. False prophets never announce false prophet. Prof, prof, I'm, hey, ding dong, I'm here to um, lead you astray, right? It sounds plausible. It's always going to be something that sounds even more loving than what, what God has already done. Oh, that's not love. Let me tell you what love is. Love is um, loving without um, distinction. <laughs> Duh. What? What Jude has already introduced is that love with distinction is actually what love is. You don't love indistinctly. You don't love everybody the same. You love your own people with a special kind of love. So it does not mean wake up as in to be, um, lay in bed conscious because you were previously unconscious. Like if you got that call to, to run in the race, just being aware of, of the race is not enough, right? You have to actually get out of bed. You have to do something. Like when, when you... It, when I wake my kids up in the morning or when my wife wakes the kids up somewhere early, right? Not, not, not the crack of noon for sure. But if they lay in bed for a while and they're, they're conscious but they're not doing anything. In, in that scenario, is, is being awake any different than being asleep? I submit to you that it's not. So the idea of being awake this morning is not just the fact that you're aware that there's icebergs out there. It's being awake and do something about it. You say, well, what am, I, what am I do? What am I to do? Am I supposed to um, start, you know, writing doctrine for the church? No. He wants us to look internal. Apathy is not just apathy towards the threat. It's apathy towards the things in my own life that I could fix, my own heart that God has shown me are wrong, but I'm, I don't care. I don't care enough to do anything about it. I don't care enough to know about any other people so I could help them. I, I don't know enough about the Bible like, you see, you're actually saying the things that are the problem, and they're things that you have access to, that you could remedy. Can I say that again? If you're like, I don't know enough to write doctrine, or to know what's false teaching, or I don't know the Bible well enough, like, could you fix that? Yeah. So stop being apathetic towards the problem. Apply it to yourself. See the problem here before you see the problem out there. And that's what we're called to do. Professing right beliefs and believable things when um, the actions don't follow is something that you, you need to be aware of. And not just looking at other people's problems, but being aware that you have your own problems. And knowing other people well enough to know whether or not they need your help or whether or not you need their help. And being sure to, no matter what, hold fast to the word of God and not anything that you hear somebody else say. Check it there first. So if I could give you like the, the step one there is, is that. First, before you try to figure out whatever 10 steps are beyond that, job one is, okay, what side of this distinction am I on? Is it the one that Jude is wishing to you, grace, peace, and love, beloved, those who are kept and guarded? Or am I on this other distinction that don't receive those things, that I believe like a false peace, that I, it doesn't really matter, that God just loves everybody distinctly and we're all going to heaven? 
That's, that's a distinction you need to first settle in your heart. And then job one is to make sure that whatever else, you're not exacerbating the problem. Okay? I'm going to leave all of that for next week. Um, I'll stay on my notes this morning. So I hope this morning that it's been um, a call. But, but like, I, I don't want to discourage you from that sounds, that sounds incredibly like, like a huge task. Like how, how am I to save the Titanic? Like you're not. You're called to be aware of yourself. And so I just want to encourage you this morning that God has not called you to, to that. You're, you're, you're being made aware by his word this morning from Jude's mouth to yours, uh, to your ears. Maybe God calling you to himself and to make sure that you're resting in him that you're striving from that and you're not mistaking apathy for resting. So I hope to leave that tension there um, for next week. So um, let me pray.